This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 211, entitled, Jesus' Misunderstood Father, in John chapter 8. We are pressing on into John chapter 8 as we continue to examine the theme of misunderstanding in the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. Now we began looking at the theme of misunderstanding back in episode 204, so you might find it enjoyable to begin that series from that particular episode. Of course, our plan is to look at all of the major occurrences of this theme of misunderstanding within the fourth gospel. Now, you will recall that the theme of misunderstanding appears like this. Step number one, Jesus makes an ambiguous statement, followed by step number two. The conversation partner misunderstands what Jesus just said, either by interpreting it literally or by asking an inappropriate question. And third, either Jesus or the narrator explains the statement, although sometimes the explanation is missing but clearly implied. Now this week's episode, we'll look at the theme of misunderstanding in John chapter 8. And this particular misunderstanding deals with the identity of Jesus' father. How can it be that the Jews, who were Unitarians, did not understand the identity of the Father. What does Jesus' claim about the Father say about his own messianic identity? And how does Jesus' claim to be the light of the world give significance to his messianic role? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is Jesus' Father misunderstood. We're reading out of John chapter 8, and I want to start in verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, 
and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. That's John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Now, before we look at the particular theme of misunderstanding, there are some key points that have jumped out in this particular passage. First, we can see that this particular dialogue is actually a continuation of the narrative that went on till the end of John chapter 7. You might know that the story of the adulterous woman from John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11, was actually added to the Gospel of John a few centuries after the Gospel of John was written. It was inserted into the middle of this long narrative. So when Jesus is speaking about being the light of the world in chapter 8, verse 12, He's actually continuing where the story left off at the end of chapter 7. Furthermore, after Jesus claims to be the light of the world, which actually is an allusion to the prologue where the personified speech and utterance of God that possessed life, that was the light of men that shines in the darkness, John 1 verses 4 through 5, the Pharisees claim that Jesus is unable to legitimately make a testimony about himself being a single person. The Torah taught that it was by the mouth of two witnesses that every fact would be confirmed. So Jesus making a claim about himself was not sufficient. Now Jesus actually agreed with what the Torah said. He said, it is said in your law that is by the testimony of two men that every fact would be confirmed. I think it's also interesting that the author of Hebrews argued that the true God was able to swear by himself, not needing any other witnesses, according to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. So if God could actually swear by himself, thereby making a testimony by himself. And if Jesus' testimony was not sufficient by himself, then the Pharisees did not think that Jesus was God. And Jesus actually agrees with this premise, indicating that Jesus did not think that he was the true God who could swear all by himself. Jesus actually responded and said that his testimony was true only because the Father also testified about Jesus. So Jesus agreed with the law, the Torah of Moses, that said that every fact would be confirmed by the testimony of two individuals. By claiming that God was Jesus' Father, he was actually stating that he was the Son of that Father meaning that Jesus is the Son of God. So by claiming that the testimony of his Father would verify what Jesus is saying, Jesus is also making an implicit reference to his own messianic self-declaration. By responding to the Pharisees and saying the Father also testifies to what Jesus is doing, he raises the question 
about the identity of his father. And this, of course, leads to the misunderstanding in today's passage. Let's look at that misunderstanding a little bit more closely. This moves us to our second point. Point number two, closely examining the theme of misunderstanding involving Jesus' father. So remember the three steps of the theme of misunderstanding. The first step is that Jesus makes an ambiguous statement. We see this in chapter 8, verse 18, where Jesus says, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. That's in chapter 8, verse 18. Now this particular statement has two important parts. It involves the identity of Jesus' Father and Jesus' self-identification by saying, I am he, or I am the one, which in Greek is ego me. The reference to the ego me when Jesus makes this particular claim has already been clearly defined and stated in the Gospel of John. The very first time that Jesus makes this declaration is in John chapter 4, where he's talking to the Samaritan woman. The woman said to Jesus in John 4.25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus responded to her, I who speak to you am he. And in doing so, Jesus claims to be the ego in me. I am he, I am the one. Namely, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the one who is coming that's going to declare all things to you. That's in John chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. So when Jesus claims to be the ego in me, the I am he, he is making claim to being the Messiah, the Christ, which in Judaism was understood as the Son of God. So Jesus says that I am he, namely I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. And the Father who sent me, who commissioned me, testifies about me. So that's what Jesus says that was ambiguous. So the second part of the theme of misunderstanding is that the conversation partner misunderstands what Jesus said, either by interpreting it literally or asking an inappropriate question. The conversation partner or partners in our context is very clearly defined as the Pharisees. They say in chapter 8, verse 19, the first part of verse 19, we'll call it chapter 8, 19a. So they were saying to him, where is your father? And this particular misunderstanding seems to be twofold, and it's very interesting that in our last episode, the misunderstanding was also twofold, and it was twofold on the very same points that we're looking at today. Not surprising, because chapter 8 is a continuation of the conversation that was going on in chapter 7. So, the twofold misunderstanding involves a misunderstanding of the destination, where, because they ask, where is your father? And, of course, they misunderstand the identity of the father who sent Jesus. They are very likely thinking of an earthly father. Where is your parent? Where is your dad? Where is your earthly father? 
where is this guy? They don't understand who Jesus' father is, and they're thinking along those particular lines. And of course, they're asking, where is this father? It's also interesting that in the Greek, it indicates that their particular questioning was an ongoing questioning. The phrase that is translated into English, they were saying in Greek, is eleon, which is the imperfect of lego. They were saying, they were speaking, eleon un afto. Therefore, they were saying to him, they were constantly saying to him, they were constantly asking Jesus, where is your father? Where is your father? Where is your father? It's only summarized here in one particular sentence, but the request and the petitions that were given to Jesus in regard to the identity of the father, and of course, in regard to the location of this father, were ongoing questions. They continued to ask him. They were asking him. They were saying this to him over and over. Where is your father? And it's a very important point because it indicates that this misunderstanding was a repeated misunderstanding that was held by these many individuals. Now, the third part of the theme of misunderstanding is that either Jesus or the narrating author explains the statement. And Jesus gives us an explanation here at the second part of chapter 8, verse 19. This is Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So Jesus tells us here that if they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, as the narrator plainly tells us in the Gospel of John's purpose statement, in John chapter 20, verse 31, which says that the Christ is the Son of God. So if the Pharisees recognized that Jesus was this Messiah, then they would know that the Father of the Son of God is God the Father. If Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, then his Father is no merely earthly Father. His Father is God the Father. And if Jesus' Father is God, and that makes Jesus the Son of God, the Son of that particular Father. Let's look at some of the implications to this particular passage. That's our third and final point today. Christological implications to Jesus' claim about his father in John chapter 8. There's a lot of implications in this particular passage. Let's first talk about the fact that the father sent Jesus. Let's talk about this sending language, which is pervasive throughout the Gospel of John. There is a repeated emphasis in the Gospel of John, and of course here in John chapter 8, that Jesus was sent by the Father. And to be sent by someone in the ancient world indicates that you are functioning as an agent. You're dealing with the Jewish principle of agency. And an agent represents the one who sent the agent fully, meaning that the Father is the sender, and the Son is the agent, and the Son fully represents the Father. An agent also is obedient to and subordinate to the sender, 
This makes Jesus the obedient Son of God. And that God, of course, is defined as God the Father. There is no co-equality here between the agent, the Son, and the Father, the only true God. Jesus is obedient to the Father. Jesus is subordinate to the Father. That's what it means for an agent to function as the one who represents the sender. Now, in the prologue of the Gospel of John, the prologue, of course, is the first 18 verses of the Gospel that sets out the theology from the get-go. God has sent his personified word. And his personified word is overlapping in themes and theology with God's personified wisdom. And God's personified word became embodied in the human Jesus at his birth, the act of the word becoming flesh. And this is really important for us to really grasp and understand fully. If the human fleshly Jesus was already the embodiment of the sent word and wisdom of God, then Jesus can understand himself as a human being as having been sent by the Father because he identifies himself as the embodiment of God's word and God's word was sent from heaven. That word, of course, is a personification. It's not a conscious person alongside God. It is God's word. It's his creative speech. It's his utterance. It's his wisdom. It's his wise interaction with his creation. So if the Father really did send and commission Jesus, then Jesus is the legitimate Messiah. Jesus would not be a messianic pretender as the literary opponents of the fourth gospel are actually suggesting. The Gospel of John is written to argue that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really did have a true commissioning from God, thereby Jesus' words and deeds are legitimate. God approves them. God has this stamp of approval on Jesus. Jesus is not a false messiah or a messianic pretender. That's what the opponents of the Gospel of John are suggesting. Let's also talk about Jesus as the light of the world. Now, by claiming that Jesus is the light of the world, in chapter 8, verse 12, this actually draws upon many important theological points. In no particular order, we could look at the fact that Israel as a nation was called to be the light of the world. We can see this reminded to Israel's readers in passages like Isaiah 42, verse 6, and Isaiah 49, verse 6 where they are to be the light of the world, the light to the nations, the people in whom God is going to bring his salvation to the entire world. This continues the theology of how God is going to restore the world that began in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, in the first three verses, God calls Abraham and says that in Abraham's family, in Abraham's seed, God is going to bring a blessing to the entire world. And blessing, according to the theology of Genesis, is what undoes the curse. Blessings undo curses. So in order to deal with the curse of sin and death, God brings about blessing. How does God bring about blessing? By calling faithful children of Abraham. 
they are to be the light of the world. And Jesus as the Messiah, as Israel's anointed royal representative, he himself clearly is going to claim to be the light of the world. Another aspect of being the light of the world involves the symbolism from the Feast of Tabernacles. According to the Mishnah, in the particular reference is uh, Mishnah's tractate on Sukkot, chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, the lighting of the ceremonial candles that took place during the Feast of Tabernacles were actually used in worship settings. And we know that the Feast of Tabernacles was already the context of the dialogue going back into John chapter 7. We can see that through many details in chapter 7. So since the lighting of ceremonial candles took place in the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus himself takes this opportunity within the Jewish festival to point to his own messianic identity and his relationship with God by claiming to be the light of the world. So he draws on this symbolism that's taking place within the festival that he is participating in, and he uses it to point to himself and, of course, to point to the identity of the Father. Most importantly, in my opinion, Jesus claiming to be the light of the world is drawing on the prologue. In John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, it says, In the Logos, in God's personified word, was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 5 says that that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness was not able to comprehend or to overtake that light. So within God's Logos, God's creative speech, was the light of men, and that light of men shines in the darkness. And Jesus, seeing himself as a human being, that is the embodiment, the incarnation, dare I say, of God's personified word. Jesus can say in chapter 8, verse 12, that he is the light of the world and that those who follow him will not walk in darkness. They will have the light of life. Clearly, all of those themes about being the light, the light that is the light of men, that light shining in the darkness, that light that is in the life that is possessed by the personified word that's clearly drawing on John chapter 1 verses 4 through 5. So Jesus as a human being, as a legitimate member of the human race, is speaking as the continued embodiment of God's word in which was life and light to the world. That's very, very important. It's very significant for Jesus' own self-understanding. So, when the word, which was the light of men that shines in the darkness, became flesh, it's important to know that that word, that personified word, did not cease to be. The human Jesus, it seems, continues to be and function as this word that is the light of the world, the light that shines in the darkness, being the light of human beings. So the function of God's word that we see in the prologue doesn't stop when the word becomes flesh. As we see in the Gospel of John, it continues in the life of the human Jesus when Jesus comes into existence.
We can also see in our passage that the father who sent Jesus gives an identity to the God who was in the beginning. And this seems to be kind of an obvious point, but I think it's something that you could point out to your friends who may have some trouble understanding John chapter 1. So here's the way that this logic works. Jesus claims that the Father sent him. John chapter 1 speaks about the word that was with God. So if Jesus is the embodiment of that personified word, then the God who was in the beginning is actually the Father, the Father alone. That God that's in the beginning is not a triune God. It's not a God consisting of multiple persons. That God is identified by Jesus as the Father. So we have in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that God is the Father. And that Word is fully expressive of God the Father. That's clear. God in the Bible primarily refers to the Father alone. That's a very interesting point. Jesus identifies the God that was in the beginning as the Father, as Jesus' Father. Let's talk a little bit more about Jesus' claim to be the I am he, this self-declaration. And that's very important that this phrase, ego in me, means I am he, I am the one. It is a self-referential declaration. I am the one that we're talking about. I am he, I am that particular person. It is a self-declaration. And I think it's very interesting that most of the modern commentaries on the Gospel of John actually admit this point. Those commentaries acknowledge that the phrase, I am he, stated by Jesus, is a basic self-declaration. I am he, I am the one. I am the one that we are talking about, the one that I am referring to. So some people will suggest that Jesus possibly is claiming to be the I am figure from the Old Testament. In the Septuagint of the book of Isaiah, Yahweh himself uses the phrase ego in me to refer to himself, to say, I am, I am he, I am the one. So is Jesus claiming to be this I am figure from the Old Testament? I should also put a footnote here that by God claiming to be I am, God is claiming to be a single person because I is a singular pronoun and the verb am is also singular. So by God claiming to be I am, which he does do in a variety of places, particularly in Isaiah, both in the Hebrew and in the Septuagint, God is claiming to be a single person, one person, not two persons, certainly not three persons, but one single person. So is Jesus claiming to be this one single person that Yahweh himself claims to be in the Old Testament. I think this is extremely unlikely. Why is this unlikely? Because Jesus claims to have a father. And the God of the Old Testament is the father. So Jesus could not claim legitimately to be this I am figure from the Old Testament because the I am from the Old Testament does not have a father above him. So it's very unlikely that Jesus intended to be understood by claiming to be the I am divine figure from the Old Testament, who is actually the Father. Remember, 
in John chapter 4, verses 25 through 26, the very first occurrence of Jesus claiming to be this ego in me figure, he clearly says it as a response to the Samaritan woman looking for the Messiah, looking for the Christ. And Jesus says, I, the one who is speaking to you, am he. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. So, Jesus, according to his own definition, according to his own words, uses the phrase, I am, to refer to the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And that's very important. Messiah means Son of God. And so Jesus claiming that the Father is his own Father would mean that Jesus is the Son, the Son of that Father. And Jesus' claim that the Father is his Father would actually be a self-declaration that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. And this confirms that the identity of this I am he would be a messianic reference. Remember that Messiah was a reference to the Son of God according to Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. This is very clear, basic, fundamental Jewish messianic theology. Not arguable. Lastly, I want to talk about Jesus speaking about the fact that people need to know the Father. Chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now remember, the Jews were Unitarians. They understood that God was only one person. That was part of their creed. That was part of the Shema of Israel. The hear Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. They understood that God was one person. I mean, they knew, quote-unquote, that God was only one person. But Jesus here says that they do not know Jesus' Father. And that's very, very interesting. It suggests that knowing the Father is much more than a mere factual mathematical calculation. Knowing the Father truly involves a faithful believing relationship that is particularly linked to the one whom the Father sent, namely the Son of God, who is the Father's anointed Messiah. Now you are right to connect a passage like this in chapter 8, verse 19, to John 17.3. John 17.3 has Jesus defining eternal life as knowing the Father, namely knowing the only true God, and also knowing Jesus, the one whom the only true God sent. So the faithful understanding, the true knowing of the Father, is actually tied and linked to the faithful understanding of the Father's agent, the Messiah, the one whom the only true God has truly commissioned. In other words, you cannot know the Father without knowing the Son, and vice versa, according to the Gospel of John and according to Jesus himself. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we continue to look in John chapter 8 at its many occurrences of misunderstanding between Jesus and his dialogue partners. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the important truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to offer a donation, you may check us out on PayPal. There is a link to donate in the description of this episode. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.